You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today I wanted to start off the show talking about a post, a blog post that uh, Rich Sutton put up recently, as of this taping, called The Bitter Lesson about some of his work that he's done in the field. Did you get a chance to, to see it briefly? I found it really interesting. I have. I have. Um, I've definitely seen it. It's, uh, it even came up, uh, actually it came up in the, the Mars conference. Peter Abiel was talking about, was quoting from it. And I guess one way of summarizing it is that the general methods win out. And I think that that's, um, I, does, it, does, does he mean, is it bitter because it just means we don't get to do as much sciencing as we might hope? Is that why it's bitter? That all your sciencing about this problem that you thought a lot a bit about it, and, and now someone just comes along with a neural network and says, it's nice that you've been thinking about human language for the last 40 years. My neural network does this. <laughs> Is that the bit of bit? I, I think so. I don't know. He he says he says in the letter, the one thing that should go learned from this bitter lesson is the great power of general purpose methods, of methods that continue to scale with increased computation, even as the available computation becomes very great. The two methods that seem to scale arbitrarily in this way are search and learning, right? So yeah, I, I think so. So I think he's missing one word there, increased computation and data, because the two go hand in hand. And I think it would be misleading to think that you don't have to think about a problem when you've got low data. Indeed, I think when we had low data, where we've seen a lot of the progress is on large data, and where we had low data, a lot of the performant methods were less general purpose, including examples. He mentions such as SIFT features or edge detectors, which has fallen away with very large data. It comes a bit about what we've been speaking about before with the sensorics, that like if I would say that this is kind of true, but what it's also missing is is the, the point about sensorics. You need the sensors or the availability of data alongside the compute and your general purpose method before this comes true. But maybe the bit of lesson is what he really means is in the end that comes true because maybe in the end that comes. So, but that, that concerns me a little bit because if, if our answer is therefore we just, I mean, that sort of leads in the extreme case to the sort of the deep mind motto, which is solve intelligence and solve everything else. And then to me, that motto exists as something for me to work against. I mean, it's uh, like sort of gravity. It's great that it exists, but, you know, I'm constantly fighting it because I think that, well, I could disagree with things more than that, but, but in the meantime, I mean, this, this would imply it's an extreme that you don't worry about domains at all, which I don't think is true. And maybe that's not what Rich means. But having said that, there's clearly a tension there where you will eventually get overtaken in a field that's important enough, such as vision or speech, by general purpose methods. Yeah. He says something that I found really insightful. We should stop trying to find simple ways to think about the contents of minds, such as simple ways to think about space, objects, multiple agents, or symmetries. Yeah. These are part of the arbitrary, intrinsically complex outside world. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's something that really resonates with me in terms of what we're seeing. And regardless of how it's come about, whether it's compute or data, is the these methods are quite empirically based that convert those objects into so things that we can represent in the computer that we can reason about, whether that's by projecting them into a low-dimensional embedding, like uh, word-to-vec, and reasoning about them by moving them vectorially or in whichever way. Your sort of classic view on AI, that the hard problem was the reasoning and that all these sensorics. And, and so let's, 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 going back to what I just said, let's, let's not 
look at the sensors independently of these learning systems because what we're actually going is we're going we're just bringing the notion of the audio sound say closer to what the meaning the intent of the human mind was when the sound was uttered reversing that process i think one of the things with gpt gpt2 and and similar algorithms is is how in, uninteresting the text is even if it does look somewhat natural because it's just giving you the map between the words and the intent it's not giving you the deeper thing and i guess what um so what another thing that Rich is railing against, which I would certainly agree with, is the introspection isn't enough. I mean, this this way, that, oh, I'll just think about how I do this. And so that's been known for a while, right? And I think, um, I guess Richard Suskin makes this point in his book on the professions as well, Richard and Daniel Suskin. But I've seen Richard talk about it, where um, the notion of looking inside your head and thinking, I play chess like this, and I think about this, and therefore I should implement that in a program. I mean, that, that notion, I think, died in like the 1960s or 70s. So, but there's maybe those, these notions keep coming back and maybe Rich is also coming back against that. But I, I, I tell you what, though, I think that a letter like this, which I think is going to be very influential, and I love Rich, he's a great thinker and it's great to have these things to, uh, to strive against. What you'll get is you'll get a return wave. What we see over time is that, yes, this is true for a lot of things we're interested in now. But of course, if you take this approach to solving every problem in the world, we will solve like, okay, one of two things will happen. Either this general idea works for solving all problems in the world, okay, in which case we're done. Or it will solve, even if 90% of the world's current important problems can be solved in this way, we'll work away at it until we've done those 90%. And then 100% of the remaining problems in the world won't be solvable in this way, which is like why there's a major constant oscillation between, oh, you have to do things this way, because you're constantly left with, you know, you come up with a technique, it solves what feels like 80 or 90% of the world's problems or the ones you're worrying about today. You start ignoring that 20% where it's not working until you've, you've vet through like those problems. And then, oh my goodness, oh, here's, here's some other difficult things. I mean, presumably cosmology isn't solved in this way for example but cosmology has just benefited from a long time of people trying to solve it in the other way right so so what you're seeing is an increasing wave of there's a bunch of stuff that wasn't solved by writing down one equation of physics you know that is going to be solved solved better by these approaches so I think that it's true and it's, and it's great when we have them, so a great expert like Rich succinctly summarizing it in, in such a great way. But I think it, to some extent, it's quite a sweet lesson. And what we, what's going to happen is that, you know, even better, and I think Peter Abiel was effectively making this point, like he, was, he had some sort of pie chart sort of showing, here's problems that require 80% human ingenuity to solve and 20% compute and data and you could either work on problems like that, or here's problems that require 20% human ingenuity to solve and 80% computer data and problems, or you could choose to work on the ones with data. And Peter's interpretation of this is, I would always go for the ones that are hit by compute and data, because the ones that didn't require compute and data, you're competing with every human that's ever existed before you in time. Now, that's a nice way of thinking about it, like, like it's you against Gauss, right? I don't want to go against Gauss. But that's not entirely true, though, is it? Because what's really truth is that... that that you're getting access to problems that Gauss didn't even have access to. 
and maybe Peter's effectively making that point, that you may have to think as hard as Gauss did or Laplace. You may not even be as clever. I mean, but you still may have to think as hard as they did. But you're sort of doing it on the back of these methods. And I think to, to you know, to me, the real lesson is they will allow us, you know, we're not just standing on the shoulders of intellectual giants of the past, but we'll be standing on the shoulders of enormous compute and data. And the next generation of people, it'll be hard for people like me to see how you make best use of that because I've been around too long. But the next generation of people, they're just going to see even further and combine the best of both worlds, I think. Excellent. Well, we will have a link to uh, Rich Sutton's post on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. It's from his website, incompleteideas.net, and it's The Bitter Lesson. This week's listener question is about the new IEEE standards on ethics for doing lots of good stuff (laughs) that came out recently. It's the first edition of Ethically Aligned Design from IEEE, and the title is A Vision for Prioritizing Human Well-Being with Autonomous and Intelligent Systems. And it's, it's essentially a handbook on how you can approach asking and answering questions. Things from like, from principles to practice, to embedding values in autonomous and intelligent systems, to, you know, how we need to think about policy and and law and even just sort of taking a stab at defining well-being. I guess, Neil, the thing that I want to talk to you about this is we have seen a lot of these sort of manifestos or 40,000 foot approaches to how we should tackle problems in ethical computing or, or ethical you know, creation of these systems. But what do you think it's going to actually take to implement this kind of thinking in the day-to-day work? Like, is this, is this enough? What do we have to do next? That's a great question. Um, It's such a big topic and it will take so long to get it right. And all these initiatives are sort of welcome in that. But the, I think what we'll see over time is some of these initiatives will turn out to be more useful than others. And I, I, it's going to be impossible to prejudge. I mean, this is a, a great group of really interesting thinkers. You know, legislation is, is, is hard, as I think we've said before, even when we're legislating for the challenges of today rather than the challenges of tomorrow. We're also legislating for a society that we won't fully understand. I think actually Tim Berners-Lee recently came out and spoke about 30 years of the internet and what sort of, if you read his statements on it, um, and he's got, I think, a new foundation, whose name escapes me for the moment, but um, is his sort of disappointment with the way it sort of evolved. And I think if you take 30 years old, I, I think, you know, Probably it's, it must be, feel similar to him. I'm just trying to project onto him at uh, bringing up a child in some sense. You know, by now 30, like, it, you can't persuade yourself it's not an adult, right? You know, there's no jurisdiction under which 30 is still a child. But the implication is that, um, that, that some of the hopes that, that Tim may have had for it when it was in its adolescence haven't panned out, particularly around the notion that the open web was going to be the panacea for so many of the world's problems. And, you know, we had a glimpse of that. If you remember when the Arab Spring started, everyone said, oh, look, the web and social media have saved the whole of the Middle East. Well, not so much is, I think, what we're seeing as a follow-up. And I think that this is one of the challenges. When we talk about AI, 
to my mind, the first ethics thing we're dealing with is the consequences of, say, the open web and what that means for individual liberty. There are some very great thinkers, uh, like I think it's Robert Miller who wrote The Assault on Privacy from like the late 1960s that predict what we're going to see today. So these activities are all very worthwhile. But even our tightest legislation, such as GDPR, goes back to the 1980s. So we do need these thinkers and we need these standards. But um, at the same time, for real change to happen, these ideas have to be assimilated amongst people and people have to be empowered to make the choices that they want about how their data should be handled and how they're viewed from intelligent systems. I mean, by another standard, it's, it's algorithmic decision-making. The GDPR talks probably more about algorithmic decision-making than data, right? I know that AI sounds like the ethics and AI, maybe that's just a cooler thing to talk about. Unfortunately, as a result, it's very easily talked about and very easily spoken about in ways that bear no real relation to the technologies we're developing. And one thing that, that is getting me increasingly frustrated is when people point the finger at people who are developing technologies and sort of say, well, they need to do this, they need to do that. Like, you know, you know people who are doing courses in AI, they'll have to do this and they'll have to do that. That's very, very easy to say when you're not creating anything yourself, you know, that, because it's basically them, it is them that's at fault for everything. Them and they, you know. I think that that word needs to be turned into we. And we means that it's not an us and them in terms of the creation, that we're getting much closer to co-creation. And that's on both sides. I think a phenomena that makes me extremely worried at the moment is the extent to which talking about AI, as we've spoken about before, has becoming a larger industry than the industry of people that are actually doing AI. And then that means that basically we can all agree, detach from reality about what the major problems are and all fund each other's grants once you've got that going, once you're departed from being attached to you. And that's okay. There's lots of fields like that. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, art is very much doing that. But when that's being funded to enormous degree by sort of people who are worried about the future of AI, then it actually becomes, you, you hear more talk about that stuff than you hear about the fundamental practical problems. And that would just cause a gap between the implementations people are making and the theorying people are doing. And if we lose that connection, which is what I see happening, we had a strong connection, I would say, as close as two years ago. But when you talk to people about, oh, who was at Davos who actually does anything in AI? It's like, well, I didn't meet anyone there who actually works directly on AI. I met a lot of people. I've not been to Davos. But who, you know, who, who was, you know, and, and so you've got, oh, so you've got the people who have gone to Davos are the people that spend their time talking about AI rather than doing it. And that's happened extremely quickly, like within two and a half years, I would say, because if we go back to, there was a period when uh, those people were coming to, uh, say, in Europe's, sort of like maybe four years ago, and not so much now. So that, that kind of worries me. But this, this is different because it's, um, I think the IEEE has a lot of technical people in it. I mean, I, I still don't think that that means that it's going to be the de facto or whatever else. But, uh, you know, what we really want is we want a number of voicings, including this one, including others, including what Tim Berners-Lee has to say, and uh, people sort of working across these fields. Otherwise, we'll end up with these sort of like we have in politics now, where we've got, uh, you know, camps that can't talk to each other who have very real concerns based on their experience of life, but have become unable to communicate those terms, those concerns 
in any way that leads to a productive future uh, for everyone. So, so let's, uh, let's try and not make the same mistake uh, when discussing the ethics of AI. Yeah, absolutely. We will have a link to IEEE's ethically aligned design on our website, along with a number of the other proposals, manifestos, writings on, on these ideas for applying ethical strategies in everyday work and, and generation up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Our guest today on Talking Machines is Andrew Beam, who has been doing amazing stuff in uh, thinking about medical problems from a computer science lens. And as always, we asked him the first question that we ask everybody, how did you get where you are? Yeah, so I think this is one of my favorite parts of Talking Machines is hearing where everybody comes from. And so going back to undergrad, I was I'm originally from North Carolina. I was an undergrad at NC State University in Raleigh, and I was triple majoring in computer science, computer engineering, and electrical engineering. Whoa! Yeah, so I sort of thought of myself as a future engineer. I had a couple jobs lined up at Cisco, so like being a network engineer. Yeah. I worked at Qualcomm for a while. And then my junior or senior year, I took an AI class. Mm-hmm. And it, it blew my mind. Like, it, it was the classic uh, Russell Norvig AI, a modern approach. So. Nice. Um, we went through all of these techniques, but also there was this really interesting philosophical side. Um, so like Searle's Chinese Room Experiment. What does it mean to be intelligent? Can we instantiate the principles of intelligence as software? So I took this class and I was like, that's it. This is what I want to do with my life. Hard left turn. Hard left After turn. After being a triple major. Right. And so I said, I think that I probably need to go to grad school uh, to do this. So I personally did not know anyone with a PhD, so I didn't know that uh, you could be a professional scientist. I didn't know that that was a career option, but I started talking to some of my professors, and they gave me some some good advice. And one professor in particular, the professor who taught this AI class, said that if you want to do AI in the future, one of the best things you could do is get a degree in statistics. Mm. Uh, So I had essentially no stats background. I had taken the stats for engineers where you learn T-tests and ANOVA, but it all seemed sort of boring. I took a year off um, after undergrad to sort of figure out exactly what it was I wanted to do. I worked for a biotech company that was doing um, some gene expression analysis. They had this interesting collaboration with the EPA. Mm. Um, The EPA was doing something called computational toxicology that was trying to change the way we test chemicals for toxicity. So a lot of that's traditionally done with animal models, and they were trying to move to in vitro computational models of that. So they were like, we would love to fund a master's in stats for you if you wanted to come do your master's thesis here with us at the EPA. Oh. Um, so I said, sure, sign me up. That sounds great. Nice. Um, so I did that. My thesis was doing some like hierarchical Bayesian modeling of a biological pathway. I used this Gibbs sampler that thankfully no longer really exists anymore <laughs> called Windbugs. Um, so I remember my master's advisor saying, you know, this thing is Windbugs for windows and bugs. And you think that this is going to be a fun time using something called Windbugs. So good luck. Yeah. So I was getting near the end of my master's and I ended up meeting the person who became my wife. And she was a medical student at UNC and she had three more years of school left. And so the sort of decision point that I was facing was, okay, do I go and work for a couple years? I'm still really passionate about AI and then do a grad program wherever she matches. Yeah. For those of you out there who don't know, being with someone in medicine is a little bit like being with someone in the military. Oh. Um, that at the end of medical school, there's posted. this thing called the match. And so they get matched with a residency program and sort of get deployed. And wherever they go, you sort of have to follow. Yeah. So again, talking with my professors, talking with my wife, 
it made the most sense to just finish a PhD at NC State where I was mm-hmm. in bioinformatics. So I could do a machine learning PhD in bioinformatics, be in the CS department, uh, get my degree in three years, and then do a postdoc wherever she deployed. Nice. So that's what I did. I did uh, Bayesian neural nets for uh, genome-wide association studies. So these are like Radford Neal style mm-hmm. Bayesian neural nets. I implemented my own Hamiltonian Monte Carlo sampler Very cool. uh, back before autograd things existed. Well, before it was cool. So, yeah. So I think that technically we have the first HMC paper that uses a GPU. Wow. Uh, we published it in a stats journal, so no one read it. Um, but I still think that we did that in like 2012 or 2013. So it's like deep cuts. It's like so deep cuts. So you're like, cuts, well, I don't cuts. know if you know, but right. like three years before it was really cool. Right. So I'm the HMC hipster, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Very nice. Um so what I learned, though, is I never want to write another MCMC sampler by hand. That was one of the big takeaways for my PhD. So then I was looking for postdocs. I, seeing what uh, sort of Kristen went through in her medical education, it became like super clear to me that there was a ton of potential for AI in medicine, hmm. um, that clinical decision-making, you know, predictive modeling, all of that didn't really exist in healthcare. So there, it was like one of those, uh, it was a really good opportunity. Also trying to sort of understand how doctors reason or at least at least how they think they reason yeah. um, seems to me to be seemed to me to be a pretty interesting thing. Um, so my PhD advisor said you should really go talk to this guy, Zach Gohani at Harvard. And who was your PhD advisor? Where did you do uh, that work? So John Doyle at NC State. So Got I stayed at, stayed in the, the same school. Mm-hmm. And so John and Zach knew each other from way back. John's from MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, you, you're, based on all the words that you said, your TF-IDF vector would match perfectly with Zach. So you should, <laughs> you should look him up. Nice. So I emailed Zach. He offered me a postdoc position in his lab. Kristen matched in Boston. So we moved up here. That's great. Uh, and Zach is at Harvard Medical School? Yeah. So, yeah, sorry. So Zach is the chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Med. Nice. It wasn't a department when I came here. So mm. it was the Center for Biomedical Informatics and has since become a proper department. A department all of its own. Exactly. Nice. So Zach and I worked on some really interesting stuff for the time I did a postdoc with him. I was a junior faculty member there for a year. And then I was on the faculty job market last summer. Mm-hmm. I did the traditional you know, job talks on the interview circuit. And while I was doing that, I was consulting for Flagship Pioneering, which is this mm-hmm. VC firm in Boston. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I was consulting on ended up becoming a company. And so there was the opportunity to sort of have my cake and eat it, too. Nice. Uh, So currently, I'm head of machine learning at a flagship startup, helping to build out a team there, helping to build out their their core technology. And then in July, I'll be coming back to Harvard as an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the School of Public Health. Amazing. And I want to return to flagship for a minute because they're they're a little bit different than I think that you might think of like a traditional VC firm. They sort of like scout the world for things that they think are cool mm-hmm. and then bring people in to kind of incubate a company or an idea around it to see if it will function. Is that is that right? Like Yeah, so that's right. So they have this really interesting model. So they've been around since the, about the year 2000 mm. and historically they were a traditional VC firm. So they've changed what VC stands for. Mm. It used to be venture capital. Now they call it venture creation. Oh, very right? nice. So that's a very savvy uh, change the, rebranding. Change the words. Yeah, okay. Um, so what they do is they do explorations every summer mm-hmm. for 
scientific ideas that they think are promising. Mm-hmm. So across, sort of across the, the whole of biology. So gene editing, new molecules, sort of whatever you could think of. There's some exploration within flagship that they're doing. Cool. They're staffed primarily by scientists. Hmm. Um, so their associates, their partners are primarily PhDs, not MBAs. Wow. And so they do these internal explorations. And at the end of each summer, they pick a handful that they think are the most promising and give them seed capital. Nice. So they give them seed capital, which is usually six months to a year worth of runway to go in do proof of concepts, see if there's any there there. And then, assuming that some of the things work out, they then take them through Series A. So they take them from ideation through Series A only with internal know-how and capital. Got it. So this model, from a scientific perspective, is pretty appealing because it frees you from a lot of the baggage that you typically have to go through with startups. So I work at a startup, but things that I don't do is take a pitch deck around the country trying to raise money because yeah. we have capital. I don't have to worry about HR things because we have an entire HR um, department at Flagship who handles hiring. They do recruiting. Nice. Um, we interview people, but a lot of people show up on our doorstep from the HR folks at Flagship. Entire IP strategy team that help wow. us think through how to protect some of the stuff that we're working on. Sort of a first-class or world-class scientific expertise network. Yeah. Um, so folks like the former CMO of Merck, high-level executives from J.P. Morgan Chase, they can put you in touch with Nobel Prize winners if you'd like to you know, discuss. Yeah. Uh, so just an immense amount of resources, and along with a lot of institutional know-how about how to start companies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that a lot of the folks at Flagship have started several companies. They've had four or five IPOs in the last several years. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're really good at doing this. And from my perspective, it helps you focus on the science, make sure that you're doing the thing that uh, is going to result in new knowledge, new scientific insights, and then they help you take that to market. Nice. So for me, it's, it's been a, a really nice learning experience and sort of not what the caricature of startup life that I had, sort yeah. of the Silicon Valley on HBO. Right. It's, it, there's Everyone in the room is an adult, you know, very sober about uh, expectations and realistic and stuff like that. So, nice. Excellent. Um, so it's been great. It sounds it sounds amazing. It sounds like sort of like a more kind of a scientific incubator process. So where... it, it, yeah, exactly. So Y Combinator is probably the closest thing okay. where you're incubated, yeah. except it's it's sort of not like that. There's not demo day. Yeah. And you're not you're not coming to them with an idea. They're sort of recruiting you for your nose exactly. for being able to suss out ideas. Exactly. exactly. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Interesting. Yeah. And you are the project that you're working on with them. The company that you're working on with them involves looking at proteins. Yeah. So lots of guests on uh, your show have said this before, but it's sort of an amazing time in biology. Yeah. The amount of data being generated, the computational stuff that we're able to do now is it, we're sort of in a moment right now. Um, so we are trying to use some of latest developments in deep learning, machine learning, AI uh, to improve the way we engineer proteins. Mm-hmm. So uh, the current sort of state of the art for protein engineering is you take a protein that sort of does the thing that you want it to do. You make some random mutations. You then assay these in the lab, take the uh, mutated proteins that do the thing a little bit better, and you repeat this over and over and over again. So this is called a directive evolution experiment. An instance of poking them one at a time over and over. Putting back on my uh, statistician hat, it's a a random walk in high dimensional space. Oh, no. Right? And so uh, we know Metropolis Hastings doesn't scale very well to high dimensional spaces, but that's sort of the existing state of the art. And uh, Francis Arnold won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for developing this. So it's nice. like the current best thing that we can do. But it sounds like a great recipe for getting trapped in a lab for the rest of your life. It does. Um, so you can you can spend a decade engineering a single protein, spend several 
grad student life, <laughs> like doing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, several um, generations of your own grad students. You right? can only sort of explore very local fitness landscape. Yeah. Um, you can't really, really radically change what the protein does. Mm-hmm. Um, so as good as it has been, uh, there's still some limitations. And we think that if you bring large amounts of data, some clever machine learning, you can sort of more precisely, more efficiently engineer protein to do them what you want to do. Nice. And again, for... I'm not a biologist, so I'm, I'm learning a lot of this. Uh, if anything happens in a cell, a protein is doing it. Right. Um, so these are going to be medicines. These are going to be therapies. These are going to be biofuels. These are like proteins do essentially nearly all biological functions. Yeah. And if you have the ability to engineer those, yeah. then they become an amazing tool set that you can use for like across a wide variety of applications. Everything from getting people who have lactose intolerance to be able to eat ice cream. Right, exactly. To, like producing oil that you could use. And I think that that's also, so that's sort of the kind of company that Flagship likes to build. So what I just described there is a platform. Mm, mm -hmm. And so a platform is a core set of competencies or capabilities that let you move into areas of orthogonal risk and value, right? So like if you can engineer a protein, you could move into biofuels, like I said, or you can move into therapeutics. And so that sort of big picture thing is sort of uh, what they uh, try to do when they do new company creation. Nice. It sounds really exciting. Well, we'll have to keep a, you'll have to come back and tell us about how it's going. Yeah, Yeah, totally. But tell us, you're moving on to, you're going to be starting at Harvard in the School of Public Health in a while. So that feels like another left turn a la the triple major in engineering and artificial intelligence. when I when I got my PhD, the person who was uh, hooding me uh, reminded me of the John Tukey quote that like the best part about being a statistician is you get to play in everyone's backyard. Uh, so I, I would like to think that I've sort of internalized that mantra and that if you have stats, CS skills, you can quickly pivot to a, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of different areas. Right. So I'll be starting my own group at the School of Public Health in the Department of Epidemiology Thanks. in July. So this was as surprising to me as it was to you. <laughs> Uh, that I sort of, I, I don't think of myself as a traditional epidemiologist, but they heard that I was on the faculty market and invited me to interview. Nice. And um, there are a couple of folks there who, if you're NCS and you don't know about them, you really should. Yeah. Um, so Jamie Robbins and Miguel Hernan are, especially Jamie, sort of invented the field of causal inference. So before Uta Pearl gets really mad that I just said that, <laughs> um, there's some there's some uh, argument about Primacy who develops. He's one of the big players. One of thank you. There yes. we go. One of the big players in causal inference. Nice. Um, and like. I think that most people are aware that this causal inference is also sort of having a moment mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. with the book of why and all that. Yeah. And so their pitch to me was like, if you want to do artificial intelligence in medicine and you want to impact clinical decision making, that's what we do. We do causal inference. We would love to understand how we can develop an interface between machine learning and stuff that you do and these causal methods. And we think that that's a really intellectually rich area to explore. Nice. They're also at the School of Public Health. You're surrounded by world-class policy wonks mm-hmm. who, uh, again, healthcare is this really, really weird environment. And it's not it's not easy to move in and disrupt. So you need people who understand healthcare policy, who understand how to affect change. And so, again, before that, I, I, it sort of seemed like a weird fit to me, too. But after talking with them and really thinking about it, it sort of made all the sense in the world. Nice. Yeah, because you, you always think of, or at least I think of, as like healthcare is this these verdant fields of all this information that we've been collecting for decades, right? But it's surrounded by these very tall and strong gates that we have also erected. That, to like... too. And underneath the verdant fields are landmines. 
Absolutely. And you can't see them. Absolutely. And you can't see them. And you have to like have someone who knows who can be like, look, there was a war fought here 45 years ago. And like there's going to be mines over here, but not mines over here. Right. Yeah. How would you know if you didn't have that person to help you? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. That sounds fantastic. So are there any questions that you're super excited to to start asking that you're you're going to have your lab (laughs) So again, uh, this is... Um, a little bit informed by my wife, who's now a neonatologist. So uh, neonatology is the the field of medicine that helps preterm infants. So if you're born before 40 weeks of gestation, you're Mm -hmm. declared preterm, you have a whole host of comorbidities like right when you're born and then a lot of developmental issues too. So I sort of think of the NICU as like one of the best places for ML and AI and all of healthcare. Uh, Let me try to make the case for that. So imagine you want to build a predictive model for like your typical type 2 diabetic American male. Most of what happens to that person occurs outside of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So do they smoke? Do they exercise regularly? Most of their risk factors that are going to inform future risk, you don't have access to. So you actually don't have the measurements that you would need to to build a, a comprehensive model of that person. In contrast, NICU infants are some of the most well-characterized patients in all of healthcare. Yeah. So they throw off real-time monitoring data. They have text data. Their doctors are writing notes about them every day. Yeah. They have structured diagnosis codes in the EHR. They have labs. Yeah. Um, you don't have to worry sort of about the what we'd call an index event. So like someone shows up in the hospital in your data set and you have no idea what they were doing for the previous 30 years. Right. Because that's Right. Not... Because literally they just came out of another person and right. like that's the problem yeah. that it's too early. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And preterm infants have an index event called birth, yeah. and they don't have data before that <laughs> right. index event. Yeah, exactly. Um, maybe what was happening with mom is germane, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but we can go and get that too. Yeah. Um, but what happened to mom when she was 13, if she's 35 now, probably isn't relevant. Right, right. And so you have much better historical data, and you just have a much better ability to characterize that yeah. patient. Wow. So again, again, so there's that. And then from an ML perspective, if I would like to build an NLP model, they have tons of notes. They have tons of text data. Absolutely. If I'm interested in time series, they have these real-time monitoring. If I want to build a computer vision system, they get x-rays. They get the same retinopathy scans that adults get mm-hmm. that was in the Google JAMA paper. Yeah. Also, like no matter what kind of data I like to model, a preterm infant generates that data. Yeah. The other nice thing is that if I want to put on my causal inference hat and understand the effect of interventions or recommend interventions, the doctors have the ability to do that. So again, going back to the sort of adult example, the best intervention is stop smoking, lose weight. But noncompliance is a huge issue. Preterm infants comply because they just sit when there. you live in an incubator, yes. you have to comply. Right, <laughs> right. And so, it's there's really interesting methodological questions. Most decisions that happen in the NICU don't have a lot of evidence behind them. Mm. Um, it's wow. hard to do trials on babies. Mm. RCTs, randomized control trials, are sort of the gold standard for evidence and deci- decision making in healthcare. And it's just really hard to do these trials. Yeah, um, on, the consenting babies. people are right. like just freaking out the whole right. time. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of what happens in the NICU, again, sort of works under this like apprentice model. So you trained under some attending who did this thing for this way, and they give you some sort of post hoc justification. Mm. But there's not very good evidence to support that. And so huge variation in practice as a result. And so there's an opportunity, again, to come in with machine learning and AI and standardize that. So uh, if we can predict what's going to happen, we can have better disease indices for this baby is actually sicker than this baby and use that to adjust and control and do all that. Lots of data, lots of opportunity. 
and who doesn't want to help tiny sick, ba- sick babies, right? Like, yeah, right. Like, and it's just like feel that got that nice like, yeah. altruistic frosting on top. Right. Yeah. Wow. So I've uh, walked through NICUs a couple times, and it's just like one of the most visceral experiences I think you can have. I'm like sure. tiny, tiny babies that are the size of your hand. Parents hunched over their incubators. Like I sort of feel like Ricky Bobby, where like I don't know what to do with my hands <laughs> right, because I'm afraid right. to like touch anything. No, yeah. But like once you see it, like you you realize that there's an uh, an opportunity to do some real good too. Yeah, and I mean not only the just like the opportunity for standardization, like not only across hospitals but maybe even across doctors, right? Like, so that's that's an excellent point. Is that even within the same hospital? Um, when there's a shift change and a new attending yeah. comes on, the way you're treating a patient will change drastically. And just a PSA, if you're doing a birthing plan that's like in a not attached to a major academic hospital, mm-hmm. just make sure there's a NICU nearby in case something goes wrong. Like probably won't, but yep, probably it's a PSA won't. from my wife that this is one of the things that she harps on. So Super, super good. From yeah. a neonatologist yeah. Yeah. Right. to all of your ears, make sure there's some sort of a NICU around. Make sure maybe you understand why the doctors at that NICU are making their choices. Yes. And well, that that, that's a that's well, a pretty deep rabbit hole. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Maybe yeah. unadvisable yeah. to try to yeah. get inside the doctor's heads at that NICU. Right. But having one available. Right. Super good. Right. Yes, absolutely. Well, that yeah. sounds fascinating. It sounds like it'll be a really amazing group to join. Yeah, it is. I mean, so I'm excited about it. In some ways, I think a much more difficult problem than the biology problems I'm mm-hmm. working on now, that for the most part, protein engineering is a technical problem. We have the ability to do really good RCTs in the lab where you change something and observe the output. Medicine is a socio-technical problem, yeah. that there's political things that you have to consider, implementation things. The hospital is sort of like this very weird technological museum uh, that people still use faxes. They still use beepers. And so there's these sort of technological strata that for whatever reason got stuck and stayed it's just a it's a it's a really interesting place. That's really interesting. So that really takes us nicely to the to the next part that I wanted mm-hmm. to focus on. You and Zach in in I think it was 2016 mm-hmm. wrote this really nice editorial about how clinicians, clinical medicine, mm-hmm. are just not sort of taking up machine learning or these tools that are coming out of artificial intelligence research as fast as we had thought. I think mm-hmm. that was the the premise. So have you seen that change at all, or are yeah. we still stuck there? So we wrote two JAMA articles, and I think the one that you're talking about, we are trying to sort of explain yeah. what's going on in machine learning to doctors. Mm-hmm. And so I can already hear uh, my phone buzzing from the tweets because I'm going to mention this. But okay. like one of the questions that we always got is, is logistic regression machine learning? Like uh, we get all these papers to our journal that yeah. say we used machine learning as logistic regression. Mm-hmm. Like, what is going on with that? So part of the article was to try to draw some connections between models people understand, like logistic mm-hmm. regression, mm-hmm. Cox proportional hazard models, and deep neural nets. Yeah. And so that we sort of cartoon this machine learning spectrum idea where. If you place fewer assumptions on your model, then that becomes more machine learning-like. If you're really saying, I'm going to use these five variables and fit a linear model, um, that's lower on the machine learning spectrum. So part of that, the main motivation there was just say, hey, all these things are connected. There's not like... There's not a qualitative difference between what's right, happening. Right. And then the other was to point out that machine learning does not free you from good data practices. Right. So that yes. garbage in, garbage out, that if you have bad data, if you don't evaluate your model in the proper way, you're still going to get bad stuff out. Right. So we, the, the I think the lead into that article, we do say something like, 
there's all this hype in uh, around healthcare and artificial intelligence. What's going on? It's not here yet, mm-hmm. um, but if you look on a five to ten year time horizon, it's easy to see that maybe this there is more take up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also, sort of, uh, I mentioned that, that um, clinicians had been thinking about be using more data informed practices. Like we've been talking about this since like the '40s or the yep. '60s, and we're sort of like, they it's not there yet. Conversation, right? Mm-hmm. We're still not seeing that kind of uptake right. in the way that um, medicine is practiced clinically. Right. There, there was an article in the NEJM, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is sort of like uh, the, the highest of the high yeah. medical journals. It yeah. sets a lot of clinical practice standards in the United States, at least. And there's an article in the 1970s called Medicine and the Computer, Ooh. where the guy um, Schwartz foresees computers replacing a lot of the intellectual labor of human physicians. Mm. So this was in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, clearly, that hasn't happened, but people have been talking about it for a while. Fast forward to the early to mid-2000s and the um, High Tech Digital Health Mm -hmm. Act was maybe late 2000s Mm -hmm. because this was an Obama thing, uh, was supposed to make EHRs sort of mandatory. And so you were supposed to capture the data, which would then be fed to an AI kind of thing. But the data that an EHR captures is actually not the data that as a machine learning researcher Mm. I would want. What's captured in the EHR is primarily captured to facilitate billing and reimbursement. So they really do what's called upcoding, where they, if it looks like you have um, some condition, but you really don't, and maybe they screened you for it, they will say that you had it so that when they submit that claim to the insurance company, they can get maximum dollars yeah, back. Totally. So we don't really have the data that we need to build the types of machine learning models that we do in other areas where machine learning has had tons of success. Got it. So the other thing, again, this is a socio-technical problem is that by and large, a computer has made doctors' lives harder. Um, that technology has been an impediment, not an enabler. That these EHRs have thousands of checkboxes that every time they see a patient, they have to check and fill out. And again, this is to maximize reimbursement. This is not to accurately capture the interaction with the patient. So by and large, technology has made doctors' lives harder. So when you come to them and say, I've got this new widget that you just ha- you have to spend another three minutes at the end of your shift looking at a, a laptop or a tablet, yeah. that's not going to be met with a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah. So do you think that we're any further along that like five to ten years of artificial intelligence making clinical medicine easier? Or are we just really – could we build a really great model for billing? <laughs> so – so probably the most profitable early thing will be something that does automatic billing. But medical imaging has had some legitimate breakthroughs. Nice. So there was this 2016 paper by Google on predicting a condition called diabetic retinopathy mm-hmm. on the basis of photos of someone's retina. Mm-hmm. And so claimed super physician-level performance on that diagnostic task. Google's now deploying this in India, mm. uh, and so it seems to work. I think that medical imaging is definitely at the vanguard of AI and medicine. I always, when I teach to medical students, the kids who are thinking about radiology always get super nervous really quickly. Oh, no. Uh, I try to give them some reassurance, but it's clear that at least in medical imaging, the data that the algorithm gets mm-hmm. is comparable to the data that the human gets. Got it. And the tasks are well matched. Nice. So looking at an image and trying to recognize features of that image is the same thing that the doctor does, and that's the same thing that the algorithm does. Nice. Trying to predict billing codes is not at all what a human doctor right. tries to do. Right. And so, like, for those reasons, like... There's actually really exciting stuff happening in medical imaging. Excellent. Yeah. Are there other areas that you're that you're really excited about? In medicine? Yeah. Yeah. So it falls off pretty quickly after medical imaging, to be mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some interesting stuff happening in NLP. Mm-hmm. So doing automatic summarization of what's happening with a patient. Nice. 
we are sort of trying to do this thing uh, that since healthcare data has all these issues, doctors have to take all of these licensing exams. They're sort of a medical IQ test. Yeah. And so we're trying to see if we can get algorithms to pass yeah. these same licensing exams. Nice. Because there, again, we get around the messiness of the EHR data. But and, and then there's all of the exciting stuff happening. Causal inference is actually one of the exciting things in healthcare. Being able to do a what looks like a randomized controlled trial using only observational data or in a situation where you couldn't do an, the actual randomized controlled trial is something that's very exciting and seems to have legs. So I think that would probably be my number two. That sounds amazing. And I'd love to talk a little bit about a paper that you just recently put out mm-hmm. with some really interesting, huge names in the space. I think I said Joey Ito yeah, on he it, was on there, which yeah. was crazy yeah. and kind of cool. Um, he's he's still the head of the Media MIT Lab. Media Lab, right? right. Wow, yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's it's thinking about adversarial, and this is not something that I had seen before. Right. I've always seen adversarial examples, but this was thinking about adversarial attacks or using adversarial information as something that is malicious and that the medical field might need to start thinking about this more sooner because they we might start experiencing something like like sort of like a like a ddos attack like right. information interference right. attacks can you tell me about that paper and yeah so this actually i think some of the stuff we've talked about is a good lead into this and that healthcare is this really weird really has these this really intricate series of incentives that different people have yeah um so this paper is was led by sam finlayson who's a grad student mm-hmm. who i work with Joey Ito at the Media Lab, Jonathan Zittrain, who's a lawyer at Harvard Law, yeah. uh, Zach Kohane, and uh, John Bowers, also wow. at HLS. So it's sort of a rogues gallery, I think, of uh, <laughs> uh, folks who One are... One of the later Avengers movies. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it was interesting to work with them because they have this really interesting cybersecurity perspective. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the backdrop to this is that Sam and I had written this mostly technical preprint mm-hmm. about... Do these adversarial examples work on medical images? Mm. So medical images have slightly different properties than normal images. They're really standardized in some sense. They're actually easier than traditional images. And so we wrote this, uh, and we wrote some summary of the healthcare economy, like how does healthcare actually work? What are the priorities? What are the priorities? What might be opportunities? Like why might someone actually do this? And Jonathan Zittrain at HLS read the preprint and thought it was really interesting. So we just sort of had an ongoing conversation with him about that until it sort of congealed sometime probably summer uh, last year. And uh, we decided to sort of write a piece about what are all of the incentives in healthcare, and not just imaging, yeah. um, but for if we think that there's a future in which an AI system is going to be making decisions, mm-hmm. who might be interested in manipulating those systems yeah. and under what circumstances? Right. An example of this is an insurance company has an AI system to automatically reimburse or deny claims. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they will look at the incoming claims and decide whether or not this is a reimbursable claim or whether or not it gets denied. So if you're a hospital or if you're someone who commits Medicare fraud, that could be a target for manipulation. Right. That you, get, you know that there's a, a classifier on the other side of that. Uh, you know that these things can be gamed. Might someone want to attack that? Right. And so just for context, healthcare fraud in the United States is something like $270 billion a year. So it's already sort of a big wow. market. Huge amounts of Medicare, private insurance fraud happen all the time. And we were just trying to say... This probably is not happening right now, Mm -hmm. Um, and we are definitely not saying that we should stop 
doing medical AI because right. there are huge societal benefits Absolutely. that could come about this. But we would just like, here's an argument that we we would like to put out there to start the conversation. Um, let's get out in front of this. Let's understand um, what some potential pitfalls may be. Let's be frank about there are bad actors in the healthcare system. And if you put something up there that is controlling the flow of billions of dollars through a system, yeah. More than likely, someone's going to try to attack that. Yeah. And I think that just the practice of, like, asking what are the actual priorities here right. is is a really fascinating one, especially when you're thinking about tackling the actionable questions around safety, ethics, bias right. in artificial intelligence. Right. Exactly. So there's a really interesting trade-off between robustness to adversarial examples mm-hmm. and accuracy. Mm-hmm. So if you decrease the accuracy of a classifier, you can gain some robustness. Right. But how many patients are going to be misdiagnosed for that trade-off? Right. And so we should be making these trade-offs explicit. We should understand what the trade-offs even are. And so the paper, and I think it came out on Thursday, was an attempt to like start that dialogue. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll have to have you back again yeah. to tell us. You should have Sam back, too. Sam, Sam, is, Sam is great talking about this. Cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so give for me, and this is a question that I like to land on a lot these days, as someone who has taken several left turns and sort of gotten to the place where they are. And the place where they are is one that a lot of people, I think, think is really exciting right now. What advice would you give to someone who was a CS person who is really excited about medical data mm-hmm. or, or healthcare data or mm-hmm. working inside a hospital system? What would you say to them as a first step for learning to navigate this super weird socio-technological yep. museum of stuff? Yeah. So marry a doctor. Okay. <laughs> Right. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. No, Start uh, going to those med I mean, school mixers that, now. That was kids. my plan. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but seriously, I think closely collaborate with a doctor mm. or a physician or a group of physicians. That I do think that there's a tendency towards hubris for CS folks to move into a new area, mm. say, I'm here with algorithms. No one's ever tried to use algorithms in this area before. I'm yeah. going to solve a bunch of problems. This is my flag. Right. Look at your beach. Right. Exa- Hello. Yes, exactly. Yes. Oftentimes, like when you're working on a healthcare project, it's not even clear what the right question you should be asking is. Mm. So doctors are really valuable in helping you winnow the things, types of questions that you'd ask of a data set uh, to make sure that it's important, that the, it's going to be clinically impactful. Yeah. So NC State didn't have a medical school, hmm. uh, so but there were I was surrounded by a bunch of medical schools. So even if you're at a technical college that doesn't have a medical school, more than likely there are you can find someone. So I would say go to meetups, go to meetings. Come to our machine learning for health workshop at NeurIPS. So I help organize a workshop at NeurIPS that's focused on this exact thing. Mm-hmm. So you're you're an average NeurIPS attendee. You hear all this buzz about healthcare. What's going on? We uh, have speakers who are sort of leading lights in the field come and give their perspective. So like Barbara Englehart mm-hmm. um, last year came mm-hmm. and spoke about Suchi Sarias was Suchi. really amazing. Yep. Yeah. So lots of amazing talks from the perspective of a machine learning CS person. So mm-hmm. they can sort of fast track you into seeing sort of where the problems are. What are common pitfalls for folks moving into this? We have a paper that I wrote with uh, Marzia Gassimi, mm-hmm. Peter Shulam, and some other people about this exactly. So it's mm-hmm. called Opportunities for Machine Learning in Healthcare. So that is sort of supposed to be a distilled version of what you need to know. What, Where are the landmines? Uh, what are the challenges that I should anticipate? But there's no substitute for hanging out around a hospital uh, and sort of understanding the lingo, understanding the problems. And that's just something that you have to put the time in for. Yeah, doing a little field work. Doing a little field work, right. Nice. Exactly, yeah. Well, Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's been really amazing. This was great. Thanks for having me. Andrew Beam. 
really fascinating to be able to talk to him. So much cool stuff going on there. And we should say uh, VL57 is hiring. So if you are interested in the questions that Andy is getting to ask over there, check out our website, thetalkingmachines.com. We will have a link to it for them. So that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs> 